0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Reena Raja, author of What I Be Married Here Marriage, Migration, and Depossession in Neoliberal India. How are you doing today, Reena?
2: Um, hi, good afternoon Deirdre. Um, thank you for having me on this network and the podcast, I just want to wish everyone um, happy July 4th, um, I'm doing good and I'm really excited to be talking about my new book, um, Why Would I Be Married Here With You.
1: Thank you for being here, tell us a little about yourself and
2: how you became
1: interested in this project.
2: Um, So about myself, I am both a scholar and also a filmmaker and an activist. The idea about this book actually emerged from um, a research that I was doing for a documentary film on migrant domestic workers in India and the film is called Delhi Bound for Work. There, I found a large number of women were choosing to migrate to work in metropolitan cities within India as live-in domestic workers. But then there was also what I noticed, an emerging trend of um, women um, agreeing to get married to rural men in remote locations of North India. And I found that really perplexing because it's a whole different cultural space that we are talking about. And that got me started thinking, why are they doing this? Well, poverty is forcing them to go and work in metropolitan cities. And I can understand that. But why um, put themselves in these lives that will be culturally restraining? And that's got me to um, do this four-year-long research that then resulted in this book.
1: Tell us about Northern India, Um, and the crisis of the shortage of women
2: So North India is very patriarchally conservative. Um, There's always been a historical tendency for son preference, where sons are preferred over daughters because of the form of patrilineal inheritance. Land is passed down generationally from man to man. And so um, boys are preferred as children because that's how the lineage continues. Um, Societally also young men are seen as supporters of the families and the parents as the men age so in that sense men have always historically been preferred however in this part of india what has also happened is with the emergence of new reproductive technologies such as ultrasound scanning so on and so forth um and sex select you know um sex determination uh, through amniocentosis um uh, families started using this increasingly to um, see whether the fetus was a female or a male, and then go in for sex-selective abortions. In large part, it was also fueled by the increasing dowry demands of families, um, men's families for, um, for holding a marriage. So women's families did not want to uh, face economic ruination. And in that sense, it was advertised as invest 500 rupees for an abortion now and save yourself the headache of 500,000 in debt later on. So that's the kind of scenario that we are operating in. This area is also marked by increased caste tension. So India is um, divided along caste hierarchies where you have four major castes, and then you have one group of people who are other, they're labeled low caste or untouchables, and they face a lot of caste violence. Um, Within Hindus, marriages do not take place between different caste groups. So you're marrying within one caste. So the caste group that was conducting a lot of these sex-selective abortions are those that have a lot of land. They ended up having not very many women as a consequence, thereby setting off a crisis of what we call bride shortage or, you know, having men um, who are of marriageable age but are facing a deficit of Um, brides in their communities. So this is the backdrop of the shortage of women within North India, and that then results in um, what I call a kind of new form of gendered violence that is witnessed in India in this contemporary moment. Well, you you wrote a lot about the
1: women who were in the cross-regional marriages. What was the common theme that you constantly heard?
2: Um, that's a very good question that you posed. Um, the the commonest refrain that I found and which actually forms the title of the book is, why would I be married here? If I had a choice, I would not have ended up as a migrant bride. It is poverty that forced me to be married here. How you know? So the commonest theme is how poverty emerges as a powerful force. That makes women from certain historically socioeconomically marginalized communities in in India um, agree to these forms of new marriage making. And let me just elaborate a bit more on how transgressive this marriage or what we call the cross-region marriage is. Um, As I mentioned earlier, marriage only takes place within one caste one-caste group. It's very much like, you know, the fights that would happen between the Protestants and the Catholics, right? Even in contemporary India, Um, If you marry outside your caste group, there's ostracism of the family, of the community. Sometimes the young couple are hounded and killed by family members in a way to reclaim what they call the family honor. So this is the backdrop that's operating on one end in North India. On the other hand, um, we find that um, low caste communities and Muslim communities are um, more marginalized than ever before because of neoliberalism and globalization that has accentuated um, the poverty of people. Um, It's also led to what I discuss in the book, the commoditization of social relations, where dowry that is demanded by the men's families emerges as a way to generate cash for cash-poor men's families so you know the men think of their their marriage as a way to generate cash that they can use to buy commodities um, use dowry as a as a quick start to um uh, business enterprises so in that sense then they are squeezing the young women's families for more and more money um, however, what we find is that the women's families, very much like the men's, are impoverished. They're unable to meet the demands of the local men. thereby setting up this kind of gendered, what I call the matrimonial dispossession. Um, and, you know, what I found also was that the women said that we took this choice of marrying the North Indian men because... Um, this was the best option available to us. Um, we would not have been able to marry locally, our families would have been financially ruined, um, our siblings would not have been able to eat anything. So, this was a strategic choice for us to get married. And so, you have to understand how patriarchy operates. Um, women internalize that marriage has to occur, um, whether it is with this man, or you know, locally, or another man in North India. Um, and so, poverty becomes the biggest oppression. Um, And again, poverty as operationalized by the kind of neoliberal reforms that have happened in India since 1990 that have marginalized certain communities more than the other. Many of the women in your book describe
1: marriage like a prison. Can you explain that to us?
2: Yeah, and that is really unfortunate, the kind of living reality for most of the women who are um, migrant brides. I just want to make a small note that women traditionally in rural India or in India, um, very much like elsewhere, face constraints um, within patriarchal norms of marriage. They find themselves surveilled and governed by female members of their husband's families. I mean, I'm sure you're all familiar with the stereotype of the controlling mother-in-law or the scheming sister-in-law. So in this case, um, in the case of the migrant brides, very much like local brides, and I just want to add, that I undertook a comparative analysis of local brides versus the migrant brides. And I found that the local brides too faced a lot of surveillance and controls within their own marriages. However, the distinction was very sharp when it came to um, migrant brides. Um, They faced harsher surveillance because the men and their families had given money to marriage agents, or what we call brokers, to broker marriages with the women from, you know, far, you know, the furthest corners of India. Um, And so the men felt that if these women choose to turn away from the marriage or leave them, then their so-called investment, quote unquote, um, goes bad that they lose all their money that they have spent in getting this marriage alliance. Um, and so they want to guard this investment by surveilling the women day and night. I had instances where women were um, locked up in the night in the room with their husbands and let out only in the morning. In one instance, I was staying with one family that had a newly arrived bride. They had two of their guard- uh, dogs sit outside the room And and, and that was really disturbing. Anytime the women go out to pee or poo or even, you know, bathe, they always have a female family member. Um, The breakdown of gender solidarity is also witnessed on the community level, where um, village women belonging to the men's family, Um, also surveil women. So if a woman is trying to actually escape her marriage and catch a bus or, um, you know, go to the main road, she's cornered by the local women and then brought back to the family and the family is admonished that you're not guarding your women strong enough. So you see all of that operating um, there. Um, The other way in which this marriage operates like a prison is um, the inability of the women to go and visit their family members, unlike that of the local women. And the men's families do that for the first three or four years till the women have the first child. And then they hold the child as ransom to allow the women to go visit their family members alone. The women are able to then visit the family members but come back um, because the love of their child drives them to reunite with their husbands. Um, And that's when the return of the woman happens is when that surveillance drops significantly. Till that time, it is quite um, shackling. Um, It's a carceral regime and it's very, very claustrophobic and quite disturbing. However, to say that the women are trafficked is erroneous the women um, get married out of their own choice it's just that the way the marriage operates is is highly problematic and something that should not be condoned now tell us about the
1: father selling the daughters to agents who's more likely to, to do this
2: right and you know what um, I'm so glad you asked this question because when I started my research actually when I started writing my research proposal I had the belief that um, poor families were desperate to sell their daughters for the cash that they needed and and you know the very first day of my research uh, I met, couple of women who totally changed the narrative and said, we were not sold. We were married off in a legitimate manner by our families. And it's only our poverty that made our families agree to these marriages. And I wanted to test this hypothesis, whether, you know, did I have a fluke encounter with these women or was there more substance? Um, And so I conducted extensive research in the communities from where the women come from. I did surveys and then I did in-depth interviews with their family members, including their brothers, their parents, um, community members, activists, um, community um, elected representatives. And what I found was that... um, there's a very strong mythology that is circulated by anti-trafficking groups that all women are married, that certain communities are more prone to selling their daughters, and they are projected as heartless families. Um, And and nothing is further from that, um, what I found. In fact, I had one woman very irately tell me look I bore my daughter in my womb for nine months I bore the pains of delivering her to life and then I reared her to adulthood and then you have the commission to ask me that I married my soul my daughter and she took out her slipper and she brandished it in fact I have a documentary where she's actually brandishing it I mean she said bring me the person who told you this lie and I'll slap him silly um to his senses so um in fact this mythology of selling is circulated more by one by the anti-trafficking groups and at the local village level um in the men's villages by um, the marriage brokers who want to um, demand higher commission from the men. And they say that, look, this commission is all passing on to the women's families because they are wanting it to sell their daughters. Um, And in fact, marriage agents have told me that, The women's families don't sell the daughters, they do that to pocket the high profit. So um, it's very sad because it sets off into motion a whole problematic uh, belief that continues in their married life too, where the men's family then treat them as commodities that can be ordered around. They are like um, then treated as slaves, as bought women. Um, but uh, nothing could be further from this.
1: Now, what were some of the reasons why these men were unable to marry locally? You told us about some of the reasons, but can you go into depth?
2: Right. So um, <clears throat> one of the reasons that we discussed at the very outset was the shortage of women in their own communities, the, and, and that's linked to caste. As well, um, the men have to marry within their caste group. Otherwise, they and their family members face caste ostracism or social, or they become social outcasts. Um, and that's one reason why having this shortage of women because of you know um, issues tied to land inheritance, which I deal in detail in one of the chapters, makes them um, abort uh, female fetuses very problematically. The other reason um, that I want to talk about uh, is highly prevalent is historically, this part of India has always had a skewed sex ratio where men have always been more than women for biological reasons, historical reasons. Um, Earlier on, men who were either um, termed as social rejects, men who were alcoholics, drug addicts, men who were abusive of violent temperament, um, who, who were considered as unfit husband material, would not have gotten married anyway. But now what's happened is these men have become cash rich. The land is highly valued. What they do is that they are able to sell the land and um, pay a marriage agent to buy, you know, to locate a bride from the uh, from poor communities in different parts of india so the men are not able to marry locally because women's families locally reject them On grounds of alcoholism, addiction, old age, um, there's also a very strong bias operating against men who are not physically able. So, if you are disabled, um, if you have had polio, um, which is very highly um, prevalent in that region, um, those men are termed as physically unfit. Men who are landless and poor or poorly educated are also rejected by. Local families, so you see a big pool of men who are locally rejected. Now more and more families of young women realize that men have to be educated if they want better jobs. So they're not, you know, willing to marry their daughter off to someone who's landless and uneducated because it then means that the woman will be living a life of poverty. Um, so the men's, uh, the do- the the women's families are also being strategic in the way they choose marriage partners because they realize that they're going to pay dowry anyway. So might as well buy a man who is going to look after their daughter properly rather than marry her off with the same amount of dowry paid anyway to a man who would um, uh, force her to live a life of penury. Am I making sense here, Deidra? Oh, yes, you are. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing that with us. Tell us the story about Vena. Her father married her off.
2: Right. Weena is the first woman I encountered in the very first day of my research um, uh, in 2011. I met her in her own home. Her husband is a man from Haryana, North India. She is from an adjoining province. Um, she comes from a low caste community. Her family was very, very poor. And so um, I'd gone and having read stories about trafficking of women, selling of women, trade of brides. And so I met her and I asked her, um, so tell me a bit about your marriage. Very much like you asked me. And she answered me very sharply that my parents have not sold me. They've married me. And she said, Bapne becha na hai biaake. And, you know, her poor family was poor and landless. And so they could not afford to pay the dowry that was demanded by local men. And they wanted her to get married. Um, and that's when another woman who had been married in Haryana and was in a similar cross-region marriage, approached her family and said, look, um, there's a man in my village who is looking for a bride and he's willing to overlook the dowry payment. So it will be a dowry-free wedding, Um, all expenses paid. Um, Are you willing to? You know, get your daughter married off. Um, at first, count her father rejected it because he feared um, that her daughter, his daughter, would become a sex slave, or that she would be sold to a brothel and be forced into sex work. And and that was an all-consuming worry for many of the parents. Um, however, her father agreed to the marriage and so did she on the condition that they come and investigate the family and the village where she was being married. Um, So they came, um, her father and her brother accompanied her um, and her husband, who's called Devesh in the the story, um, to look at his you know, to check him, to verify that all was okay, to talk to the neighbors. Um, And once they were assured, they said, yes, that's okay. So it's the very first person who I encountered who shattered many of the ideas and preconceptions I had about cross-region marriages. um, And that set off a chain of questions that are investigated in the book.
1: Colorism and marriage, what did you find there?
2: Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> a very sad scenario about, you know, dark skin shaming, dark skin bias, and how light skin operates as social capital. Very much like in, within the, um, the the black community um, in North America, you have um, color as a hierarchy where, you know, light skin gives privilege, what I found is that light skin also operates as as a monetary privilege and capital. I term it as social capital for women. Um, and, and again, in the very first day of my fieldwork, I encountered a woman called Neetu. Um, she's the second woman I met, and she spoke about the gendered oppression of dark skin bias that is deeply prevalent in the marriage market and it's also linked to caste discrimination. So um, if you're dark-skinned in India within the matrimonial um, scenario, arranged marriage scenario, um, the families are forced to shell out higher dowry to marry a darker-skinned daughter unlike if it were a lighter skin. Thus setting off rivalries within the family where a lighter skinned daughter can afford, can you know, can be married off locally with lesser money, but local men demand higher dowry for agreeing to marry a darker-skinned woman. And, you know, I have this quote of um, a woman um, which still, hold, you know, rings in my ears. She says, you know, life is so unfair. My younger sister, slightly less dark than myself, got married near a village, our village, while fate has tossed me here away from my family, my village and the open air of my region just because I was dark complexioned and local men demanded a higher dowry. And she goes on to ask this question. If you want dowry, let it be equal for lighter skinned and dark skinned women. However, what I found was that um, this bias was so deeply rooted and so pervasive um, that That young women, as they came of marriageable age, also started using these cosmetics that are touted as skin lightening. And so, you know, it opened up a can of worms about um, the cosmetic industry and how it profits from skin whitening um, uh, products that are sold as as, uh, to poor women. And, you know, with with advertisements saying that if you apply this for 15 days, you will become more appealing as brides-to-be to young men and their families. And again, colorism does not end at marriage because colorism is also dark skin is linked to low caste status. So even if you're an upper caste woman, If you happen to be dark skinned, you're always called out as a low caste woman. That is another caste burden and caste oppression that is linked to skin tone. Um, So, for instance, my daughter is dark skinned. Um, She faces a lot of othering when she goes back to India. She's always questioned about her caste identity, whereas, within my own family, I'm lighter skinned. So you can see how it's setting off tension between mother and daughter. Just because my husband was darker skinned and we ended up having a darker toned daughter, um, it creates this exclusion for the daughter where she feels she's less worthy and less beautiful. Um, And that um, is is a highly scarring um, uh, psychological thing for all women. Within the men's families, when these dark-skinned women end up as migrant brides, they are ostracized and shunned because their dark skin is attributed to their low caste status. So the women um, are not allowed to sit equally with other caste women, um, they have to eat from different plates, they are not allowed to join other community um, women because they're seen as as untouchable. So you see that discrimination, that dark skin bias, how it haunts them and then haunts their children very much like what you see, the dark skin bias, as I talked about my own daughter, it haunts their children too. Um, at, they are labeled as, as low caste, children of low caste um, women. Along with dark skin bias, there's also this whole ethnocentrism that i was mit- witnessed in North India. This whole kind of chauvinism that people in North India are fairer and therefore civilizationally better. Um, and dark skinned people are savages. And of course, you know, all of us here in North America are familiar with this kind of problematic white supremacist discourse that um, uh, portrayed um, Africans or people of, you know, black heritage as as savages. And that continues even now in India, where anyone who's dark-skinned is seen as the savage other. And so these women are seen as civilizationally lesser. Um, as savage as savages. Um, and, and that's what I call the ethno-ethno-chauvinism, the violence of ethno-chauvinism that merges with dark skin bias um, to constrain life opportunities for women. Tell us the story
1: of the video and the dark-skinned grandchildren.
2: Right. Okay. So, you know, I was doing my research and writing the book. And then one day I just Googled, um, you know, I was writing my book, um, my article on colorism. And I came across this YouTube video um, that is sung by a very popular Haryanavi um, singer. And it's got millions of hits on the YouTube song, Um, it goes on to describe um, the travails of a family, a Haryanavi family that brings in a bride from a remote part of India who's dark-skinned. Um, she and her family are caricatured as uncouth savages who don't know how to dress properly, who don't know how to eat. Um, in fact, the video details um, uh, really repugnant images of, um, you know, uh, the, the girls' families, the way they are eating, um, their manners. And then it has a paragraph in a song um, which talks about how It laments, actually, that the grandfather is unable to recognize his own grandchildren born of this union because they are so dark-skinned. And, you know, the the grandfather is shown in the video sitting with his hands held to his forehead and crying, Um, what kind of a fate have I and my community been served by this marriage where even my um, grandchildren... Um, emerge as civilizationally less purer than what I am. So you see that kind of civilizational discourse witnessed in that song and that whole othering, caste and skin othering, that is so closely linked to um, ethnic othering in that. Um, And it's not uncommon to witness this in... um, In the local communities where I interviewed um, the women and their families, I found this kind of a bias operating amongst um, even young kids. Um, Racism is internalized. Um, Race ideology is internalized by children as they see their own parents um, exhibit this prejudice. So we had name calling um, done in play fields in schools um, where the children were bullied and pushed around and and um, were called out as, as darkies. A, a very pejorative terms that were very problematic were used against them. and, and that's what the video um, documents, but from the side of the family that has to deal with this issue. Um, and I say this in an ironic way, of course. live
1: reality women in these regions of india they have to get married explain that
2: right so um you know when i talk about lived reality i want you to understand um people often ask me this question why did these poor women choose for this kind of a marriage that would damn them in many ways um for all their lives, but also damn their children. And I often explain that I ask this question the women themselves. Um, we have to understand that patriarchy operates as a very strong force in all our lives. Um, It governs um, expectations about how women should behave. Um, Families are forced um, to control female sexuality, especially as women come of age. Um, It's also linked to caste. Um, You know, um, caste hierarchies uh, uh, operate through marriage. So This societal pressure on families of marriageable age women that they get their female wards, and I say that within quotes, married off sooner than later, the women too problematically internalize this patriarchal mindset that they have to get married one way or the other to one man or the other, whether one who lives locally or one who is culturally alien to them. So it's something that they've grown up since their childhood, that for them, the end game of their life is to get married and to find that security within The umbrella of marriage, and that is what patriarchy allows them. And this is deeply internalized by the women and their families. Any family that does not um, get their daughters who reach sexual maturity married off um, face a lot of um, social barbs by the community, by the neighbors, by their relatives. it's the the lived reality of getting married. Um as a living force that governs their lives is also deeply linked to the inability of the women to live economically dependent lives. Um, You have to understand that um, they do not have access to resources such as land ownership or have educational attainments that can allow them to get jobs and earn a livelihood to sustain themselves economically on their own. So the question then arises, if they are not married, they're not economically independent. What would happen to them once the parents die? Um, who will support them economically? And, and that's where then you have marriage emerge as an opportunity where the passing of the economic caring of the woman emerges by, you know, uh, gets pushed on to the husband's family. And I can talk about how the women provide free labor. There's also the worry that if the women are not married, they might fall prey to sexual advances of local men, thus leading to dishonor and stigma for the family. And that, you know, the woman would not be able to get married, let alone that. Um, Other family members in the family would not be able to get married primarily because of the dishonor. So all these pressures conjoined to create um, a kind of constriction on both the women and their families to find suitors for them as soon as women hit 17 or 18 years of age. And of course, I'm talking of rural areas here more than urban areas. But again, This is the mindset of the lived reality um, where, you know, the women in these regions say, you know, Didi, your sister, I had to get married. Now, would I often say, why? And these were the reasons that they would articulate. um, And this is, uh, they would say, we made a tacit peace with the kind of compromised choices we had. And this is another lived reality I talk about of making peace with patriarchal constraints, um, making peace with the kind of constrictions they face in their lives because of globalization, because of caste othering, increased commoditization of social relations through dowry um, demands, um, and also the kind of dispossessions they face because of Islamophobia. Many of the women are Muslims or um, they are from the low caste communities. So all of these then work as forces. The other interesting thing as a side note is that women uh, make peace with it in another way by saying that this was my fate. This is my kismet or fate. This is what was meant to be and I have to live this life. Maybe in another life, it would be different. But right now, this is what it is. And, you know, for a person like me, I find it really difficult. But we have to understand that they are exercising um, what I call in my book, compromised agency, they are exercising agency by choosing strategically to go for these marriages, they're going with their eyes wide open about the kind of oppressions and abuse they will suffer. And, and, you know, that could be avoided if the state gave free education for women or offered more opportunities, or if um, the women were able to live economically independent lives, um, or if dowry did not operate as a living force in marriages. So this is the harsh-lipped reality. And the sadness is that the women recognize it, but exercise their agency, however compromised it is.
1: Now what are some of the differences that the cultural markers that the women and their cross-regional husbands uh, have?
2: Oh my God, that is um, such a fantastic question and it's like talking of uh, polar opposites um, this tremendous variation um, in everything. so you have to understand we're talking about India and Everything shifts, whether we're talking about climatically, customs-wise, language-wise, food-wise, as we move 100 or 200 kilometers from one region to the other. Um, Culture varies. Um, So we're talking about differences in language, dress, social customs and practices, food habits, and even the physical environment. Let me just tell you what is the environment that the women are coming from. Most of the women who are in these marriages migrate from the furthest corners of India, eastern corners or southern corners of India. These are very tropical regions, lush green habitation, lots of fruit bearing trees. You feel literally you are in a tropical paradise. There's a large number of water bodies. The women are fish and meat eating Um, They come from those communities where fish and meat are staples, along with rice as the main item of carbohydrate that they consume. The women's communities are also not culturally oppressive. So the women have a lot of freedom of movement within their families, within the community. Um, There are a lot of women who are working. Um, and do not have the kind of constraints that they would experience in another community. So the language is also very different. Come, let's discuss the men's side, the cultural variation. The men, um, the North Indian community... um, are culturally very conservative. They're very patriarchally conservative and regressive as far as um, gender identity is concerned. The women in their communities are not allowed to move around unless there is a male presence. The women have to veil themselves Totally not so in the women's own communities. So, you know, that's the biggest thing that the women find that they have to put um, a veil over themselves and they say, We can't even walk. And it's like a, a kind of a prison that we are faced in. Um, the languages are very different, and that is the biggest first and the biggest and the first shock that they encounter. They're not able to communicate. To the men and their families. They're not able to express their needs or desires. Um, and it takes them a crash course of learning the language. The men's families don't even make an effort to learn the women's Language, so the entire burden is on the women. Um, and I've asked them questions: How do you express that you've got your periods and you need something for your menstrual needs? And they said, "Oh my God, it's such a difficult process. Like even to say I need to go and pee, um, I, I I I need to go to the bathroom, or I, I I'm having a headache, or I'm having a backache." And they say we're not able to communicate even basic things like these. Um, <clears throat> The language um, is one, as I mentioned, it creates a commune problem. The men's families um, in food habits, they are vegetarian, unlike the women who come from fish and meat eating families. Um, there, any kind of consumption of any um, food um, that is animal based is looked down upon, even Eggs are not eaten in those communities. The staple diet is wheat. Rice is seen as something inferior to be consumed. In fact, it's laughed at as one that is um, not ideal food. Um, the environment is desert-like and harsh um, compare it to the lush tropical scenario, Um, there's a lack of fruit bearing trees, also um, there's a lack of water bodies, women have to walk long distances to get water, water is at a premium in these regions, Um, it's really scarce here, the dress is also very different, and of course, the social customs and the practices that I talk about are absolutely different. They face far more regulation in terms of male-female interaction. Um, they cannot converse with mem- male members of their husband's families, unlike that in their own families so there are the strong differences what I say is they are forced into total cultural alienation they cannot even enjoy some of the festivals um, that they would have if they were in their own local communities because It's assumed in the men's families and the communities that the women have to make the adjustment. Um, And it's also linked to this kind of ethnocentric chauvinism that is prevalent in the men's communities, that our culture and our society is civilizationally better than these women. And these women should actually be grateful to be married here, because then they are able to learn some better civilizational mores. So what is the
1: overall message you would like the reader to leave with?
2: Okay, um, that's a tough one, but it's also a simple one that the lives of poor women, not just in India, but everywhere, under the specter of liberalization and globalization, is harsh. Um, and I've tried to illustrate that with the case study of India. So, you know, what I'm saying is that this micro case study of India offers all of us a framework to understand how. Um, colorism, how neoliberalism, how classism and other forms of social oppression work to constrain the choices of women and how these set into motion gendered oppression for women, particularly those who are poor, um, not just in India, but across the world. And we need to understand that that women are trying to make peace with the worst options that they are set up with against their choice. Um, And we need to understand that they are trying to exercise agency and we have to respect them and not see them as poor mute victims.
1: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us what next project you will be working on?
2: Well, thank you for um, giving me so much time. Um, So there are two projects that I'm working on. One is, of course, um, I'm looking at the children of these marriages, understanding how they are treated by the family members, by the community. Um, given the kind of oppressions and othering that these women face. The other project that I'm doing, which is currently um, uh, underway right now, is about undocumented male migrants in in Europe. I'm looking at how does racism and illegality work to... Uh, create exploitative scenarios for South Asian men, particularly from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. So these are the two projects. One is a direct outcome of what I've discussed right now. And the other one is also emerging out of my earlier work in India, where I saw a lot of men migrating to Europe and to the Middle East um, to work um, there despite uh, being undocumented or illegal. Well, thank you for being on the show, and we look forward to those projects. Thank you so much for having me here today. I really appreciate it.